0: Hello, I see you there, Gary. This is Ian Besick, uh Bezik on Stocks, the second episode. Thank you all for joining me tonight. As always, this is not financial advice, just for education and entertainment purposes only only. Uh from the top, uh in terms of the show format, what I'm thinking for the Friday episodes, it's going to be me going over several things that I thought was interesting this week, kind of a shorter form. Where I talk about something that that moved in the markets this week, kind of my ideas, and then people can hop on here and discuss is what I'm thinking. So not quite as in-depth as the SPACs episode from Monday, Uh, but then happy to take questions, uh, your comments, ideas, pitch me, whatever. Uh, It's kind of going to be more of an open mic. Uh, but yeah, just starting off, uh, crazy week in the markets. I just did my accounting for the week and this was my third worst week of the year in terms of profit and loss. So, uh, yeah, the S and P keeps going up, but definitely a more interesting market under the surface. I saw that there was a record number of new 52 week lows on the NASDAQ, despite the actual NASDAQ index hitting new highs, which is uh, quite unprecedented. The last time this happened was in 2000, which... Uh, it's kind of ominous seeing what happened to the Nasdaq at that point as well, but clearly people are chasing the the stuff that's working. Like your Nvidia's keep going up, and everything else keeps going down. Like you know, look, like some of Kathy Woods uh, ETFs hit new lows today, which is it's just a very weird divergence we're having where where the Nasdaq itself keeps going up and up, and yet you have more and more stocks, uh, both in the Nasdaq and then in other indexes that keep making new lows. It's quite strange, but anyway, the stuff I've I'm overweight in like uh, energy and emerging markets and value names, staples. It's all it's all getting hit. So, total honesty, here. it's been a rough week. But hopefully, it's still going to be a good show tonight. And appreciate all your all you being here and look forward to your participation. Uh, with that out of the way, let's get to the first topic, which is on the gaming stocks and in particular Activision, which has been uh, going down like a stone. Uh, it was around 100 bucks earlier this year. And uh, now it's down to 62 just over the past uh, couple of weeks. So I think it was a uh, 80 and now it's dropped another 20, 25%. Uh, and arguably there's two reasons for that, which is kind of what makes it interesting. Cause I see people talking about the stock in a couple of different ways. Uh, you've got the personal conduct uh, concerns there that management has kind of let uh, kind of a frat house environment sort of go there that, uh yeah there's been some big problems a lot of developers are leaving the company uh players are kind of boycotting or protesting them yeah and so you've got this big like mess that you've got going on there but then from the bigger picture there's concerns about how they've been running their business uh for those who are unfamiliar they own a bunch of well-known gaming ip like world of warcraft and call of duty uh they bought the mobile games like candy crush and and whatnot, Uh, but a big concern there, they haven't released a new title, like a new video game that anyone really cares about since Overwatch in 2016. It's all been sequels and new editions and mobile ports of games that have been released on PC or console. Uh, But there's the idea that their content has gotten kind of stale. And meanwhile, you've had new games from Independence or from other uh, shops like Fortnite that have come on the scene. That have taken a lot of uh, the player base that would have been blizzards in the past and obviously they had merged with uh, uh what's the name the studio that uh that had owned world of warcraft and so uh, the player base has been declining there for years i think overall activision's monthly active users have fallen about two or three million over the past couple of years and so there's people looking at this and saying yeah it's kind of a declining business uh, but now if the stocks drop from 100 to 62, now it's only selling at about 15 times earnings. And people are saying that that this is a good bargain at that price. And I can see both sides of the argument. Uh, I think I've seen the bull and bear case. And I think people are kind of talking past each other. Because uh, on the bull side, people say that it's cheaper than it, than it has normally been and that the personal allegation, the the scandal sort of stuff will will clear up, which is probably true. In general, when stocks go down on scandals over personal behavior, like Papa John's a few years ago, those have been good buying opportunities historically. Uh, so let's see. Yeah, so I would not be too concerned about that. However, sorry. Uh, However, I think the bigger concern is, is this the right valuation or not for the company? Because you have to ask yourself, how long is the earnings life on these assets? Like, as I was saying, they've been writing the same games they've had for many years, but gaming does change. It's like, what were the big games 10 or 15 years ago? Stuff like EverQuest still popular, not really Farmville. Is anyone playing that anymore? Uh, the stuff that used to be big, some of it's still big, but... Something like Halo was the biggest game in the world when I was a teenager, and now, I mean, people still buy it, but it's not nearly the same level as it used to be. I think outside of a few franchises, like maybe FIFA, where the world loves soccer, uh, it's hard for a franchise to stay on top forever. And so I think it's right to ask, is something how much is Call of Duty worth in 2030, 2035? And so it's hard to say exactly what the right terminal value on a on a gaming business is. Bulls will argue that that's counteracted by the fact that uh the the revenue models changed. Before you used to sell a game once and you'd get fifty or sixty dollars up front when you sold it and then that was the end of the revenue stream. But now you get you get revenue going on and on because they sell the DLCs, downloadable content, uh where every few months they can sell like a new map or new characters or uh boxes like loot boxes where you get uh, bonuses particularly for online mode. And so now you sell a game and it will generate revenue for many years. Whereas before you just you got revenue once. Kind of like the switch to SaaS and software, where before you sold a, a software once, but now you get to sell the license every month. And so that's that's been hugely profitable for software companies. And that's the same thing we're seeing in gaming. That's true. And then in mobile, obviously something like Candy Crush has a much different revenue profile because people want to buy the boosters to get through a level faster and whatnot and that's been an incredibly sticky and profitable revenue source uh i think a big question in terms of the mobile gaming which is a big part of activision's business is how long does that like is mobile gaming going to be a big thing forever or at some point does does that entertainment time jump into something else uh like particularly with all the metaverse stuff we're seeing now, are people going to be wanting to play on their phones in 10 or 15 years? Or are people going to be playing in some other way or doing something else when they're traveling? Uh, yeah, just mobile games are not nearly as good in terms of the quality of the game as as a console game or a PC game. And so I would be concerned if Activision relies more and more on mobile games for revenues because I don't think that that's a, I don't think that's a permanent revenue source. A lot of people are engaging with it just. Because I don't have anything better to do when they're on the subway or whatever, waiting for a meeting. Uh, but but we'll see. I, I think the bulls make a decent case, and the stock's pretty cheap. And the personal allegation stuff will go away in due time. And so I think people can make some money buying the stock here as a as a short term recovery trade. And yeah, under to 62 is a big drop. Uh, but I see people calling kind of it a long term compounder, and I'm not so sure on that. Uh, so yeah, that's my quick take on Activision. If anyone wants to hop on, has an opinion on it in particular, gaming stocks, we'd be happy to hear it. Or else I'll jump to the next topic. Let's see. Gary. Are you there, Gary? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I just have a general question for you regarding uh, video games in terms of demographics and... The idea that millennials and young people are more um, interested in video games than in television going forward. Yeah, I believe that that's absolutely true. I was looking at the Nielsen data the other day, and for people over 65, it's something incredible. It's consumed like seven hours of TV a day. But you look at people my age and younger, like under 30s, 20s, and it's only like two or three hours a day of television. And then much more of that time is on video games or other content. And so, yes, I think you're absolutely right that that video games have the opportunity to replace uh, television to a significant extent. Uh, obviously, I think as people get older, they'll prefer more passive entertainment yeah. than than active entertainment. And so maybe maybe a millennial that only plays video games now goes to like half television and half video games when they're older. But yeah, I think you're right that that the the overall market is expanding dramatically. I'm curious if you think that new players in video games like Facebook or others might take away market share from a legacy video game uh, companies like Activision and Electric Arts. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big threat. Uh, yeah, you see stuff like Fortnite that came out of nowhere. And then if you look around on Steam, Steam is the big PC uh, video game marketplace. You look around in there now and there's a ton of indie games that will get relatively big and sell a couple million copies that are from studios that only have five or ten developers. The barriers to entry for launching video games are lower than ever because a small development team can find a mass audience back in, say, 2000 if you wanted to sell a video game to consumers. You had to talk to Best Buy and and Walmart and whatnot to get them to carry your game distribution. It was hard to even let players know that their game existed, but now an indie game, all they have to say is they to like drop a nice trailer on YouTube and then get in the Steam algorithm, and then Steam will say people like you that played this game and this game will also like this one, and then people are playing a game from some developer in Poland for twenty bucks that they've never heard of before instead of buying the. Sixty dollar game from Activision, and and you see that if you look, if you Google like people leaving Activision with all of the scandals they've had lately, a lot of them are leaving to either set up or join indie shops as well. So I think you'll see a lot of ex-Activision employees that are uh, joining the competition going forward. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. You probably saw that I'd been involved in Unity Stack before, which is the game engine that people can code uh, mobile and PC games in. And I think that's probably a more interesting way to play the, it's kind of a picks and shovels play on gaming because you get to own the development tools that all of these indie gaming companies are using. The only issue there being that valuation has gotten totally crazy with the the metaverse thing, because that stack's doubled in in six months. But I think companies like Unity are better positioned to, to win from the from the growing video game market overall, because whatever games come out, uh, Unity should get a cut of it, particularly for the the, uh, virtual reality games. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Anyone else? Yep, thank you. All right, so I will jump on to Alibaba then. Um, And then just a little backstory for people listening that aren't too familiar with me. I worked at Kearsdale, which was an activist hedge fund that when I joined in 2011, we were focused primarily on, uh, um, going, on shorting Chinese companies. Uh, and in 2011 in particular, we earned 198% for the year. And that was almost all from shorting uh, Chinese, reverse merger Chinese companies that uh, had wildly inflated stock prices in the U.S., and so that was my first job out of college was working on that. And so I got to know a bunch of Chinese companies very well. To give you an example of one that I was working on, uh it's called Yangyi. They claimed to have a fertilizer that worked better than other people's fertilizer and they were selling it in 20,000 different stores around China, they said. And I read through their 10K and there was all sorts of weird stuff like the they didn't identify who their distributors were, but their distributors were always changing in terms of the top five. And I tracked the sales numbers from distributor A and B and C through each quarter and it didn't remotely add up to a hundred percent. They said they tripled sales, but they hadn't hired any employees, which seemed weird. And then once again, they'd grown their sales tremendously, but they hadn't spent any money on capital expenditures. Like presumably a fertilizer company needs to, like build a factory or something if they're going to grow their sales that much. And so I published a skeptical article on Seeking Alpha just saying this stuff seems weird. And then the CFO called me uh, like two in the morning, China time, was yelling at me. He's like, you've totally misunderstood the company. We don't know why you've done this to us and retract your article, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I published an article saying, like, just that he called me and this was his side of the story. Uh, but then their next ten, their next quarterly report came out and there was more stuff that didn't make sense. So I reiterated my short call and uh, the company was a, a scheme and we covered many of those. But anyway, that got me to understanding how these Chinese companies were operating differently from many others uh, in that. They would list in the U.S. and have one set of accounts in China and a different set in the U.S. Uh, it was a uniquely uh, difficult market for outsiders to understand. And so this all came back around with Alibaba, which obviously it got off to a to a bad start back in 2011. Yahoo had owned believe, 43% of Alibaba. And then Jack Ma, the CEO of Alibaba and others, decided to spin off Alipay, the a highly valuable uh, financial arm of Alibaba and tried to exclude Yahoo from it altogether. And eventually they settled, but Yahoo got ripped off. And there had been major funds that had been long Yahoo for years uh, just for the ownership stake in that. And um, they all got screwed pretty much. Uh, yeah, and then Alibaba, so already you had the reputation that insiders were going to do their own thing rather than treating foreign shareholders. So, Obviously, Yahoo was a significant foreign shareholder. It wasn't just some random shareholder base. They they got the best of one of the biggest tech companies in the world. So that should give investors a sense of where things were going. The IPO in 2014, I think, and almost immediately they get hit with an SEC investigation looking into their sales and revenue practices. Uh, Eventually, they make that go away. Alibaba hires people from the SEC. It's kind of a good way to make uh, investigations disappear. Uh, 2016, I think, John Hempton, a uh, famous fund manager out of Australia, publishes a a report on his blog saying their sales numbers make absolutely no sense. Uh, uh, 2019, a blogger out of China predicted Alibaba's sales numbers months in advance of their singles day sales and said that their sales, Alibaba's reported sales, just came from a, a line graph. And he modeled it in Excel and said exactly what their sales number would be for 2019. And then sure enough, six months later, Alibaba reported precisely the number that the blogger had said. And then Alibaba responded by suing the blogger and making him disappear. And so just, this company has always been uh, kind of shady. Uh, and so I think it's been interesting watching because i I'd always been like, yeah, this company is doing the same stuff that I saw back in 2011, only on a much bigger scale. But how will will it end? And then I think in 2021, we've kind of seen how it's ended in terms of you've seen the government crack down. Jack Ma has disappeared last year. Like Officially, he's still around, but he's not appeared in public since last year. No one really knows where he is. And obviously, it's very weird to have the leader disappear when the stock price has collapsed like that. Can you imagine in the U.S. if the Amazon stock fell by half and Jeff Bezos disappeared there was just a total uh, black hole of leadership at the at Amazon. But that's what's happened with Alibaba. You've seen you've seen the government go after the cloud business, have blocked their IPO for the financial services, uh, gone after gaming. Just It's been one hit after another. And so I've been wondering because it was like Alibaba had, had seemingly inflated their numbers. So it was like, how is this going to end? Is it going to end like Enron? Or is it going to end more? More quietly, And it seems China's found an interesting way to wind it down. Uh, and then this quarter, uh, finally, like Alibaba came clean on the numbers. You look and they guided down all over the place. Uh, previously, a big part of Alibaba's earnings, and I'm using the, the scare quotes uh, when I say earnings, had been from them selling uh, Alibaba invests and in a lot of other Chinese tech companies. And then they sell pieces of those tech companies to related parties. And then at a higher price, like eBay, they buy like Alibaba Pictures and Alibaba Health, for example, and then you buy fifty one percent. Sorry, you sell fifty one percent of it to someone else that's your friend at a higher price, and then you get to mark up the value of your stock uh, to the new market price, and you get to claim that immediately as income. And Alibaba has been doing that for years to a tremendous scale. If you read their four hundred page annual report, a big chunk of it is describing what their hundreds of subsidiaries have been doing in terms of funding and financing each other. So they've got this giant revolving door of of assets being shuffled around so they could mark higher prices. In this quarter, they basically just said our investments have lost a lot of value, so we're taking a huge write down. They also said their margins had gone down. Um, What else? Yeah, they guided down. They said their revenues are down to single-digit growth now, which is fascinating. In 2018, the Chinese economy decelerated dramatically and JD, which I've owned in the past, which is their biggest rival, and I would argue that has much better accounting, much better management team. In 2018, JD's revenue growth went from 50% to 18%. Meanwhile, Alibaba stayed at 50%. They they acted like there had been no revenue slowdown at all, which seems impossible. Uh, but anyway, JD stock got killed, and I said to buy it because I, I figured China would speed back up. Uh, But Alibaba's obviously didn't get killed because they kept reporting good numbers. But now Alibaba's reporting very bad numbers, whereas JD is reporting decent numbers. And JD's stock is up 30%, I think, the past couple of weeks because uh, JD didn't slow down. And meanwhile, Alibaba's now reporting terrible numbers. And so it seems like the, the people that are in charge there, which we don't know who that is since Jack Ma has disappeared. But anyway, the people that are in charge have decided to just kind of get Alibaba's numbers back in line uh and try to reposition the company. And so previously I'd said to either be short or to stay out of the way with Alibaba. I think it might be starting to get interesting in the sense that I get it seems like they're kind of fessing up and saying, hey our numbers were were kind of too optimistic before. and Now we're being a little more realistic in terms of our outlook. Like here's real guidance, here's real revenue numbers. Um so maybe we're entering a new era, particularly with the change in management there. Uh, I still wouldn't want to own it, at least not directly, uh, given their past history. I mean, just what they did to Yahoo alone makes it uh, damaged goods in terms of some of the other options. But uh, sentiment's pretty bad on Alibaba. Like six months ago, everyone on Twitter was saying that they owned it. It was their largest position. And there were guys saying they had 100% of their portfolio and call options on it now nobody's talking about alibaba like what the stock was down 12 percent yesterday i think and there's hardly anyone like even the people that have been buying every day on the way down now they've just disappeared that's often when you see sentiment bottom uh, i would be cautious owning too much alibaba individually just because i still don't trust their accounting but it seems like they've decided to take the kitchen sink approach and try to move forward. There's some real valuable assets there. I think the cloud business was quite good. Um, So for a a more risk-seeking investor, this might be the time to get involved. Or like I am, you can buy a basket of China stocks and the FXI ETF, for example, Alibaba, I believe is the number two holding. It's the number one holding in the China internet ETF. Uh, So I think from a sentiment perspective, Alibaba is probably getting about as bad as it's going to get. And the fact that Uh, people on Twitter and fund managers like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Pabrai, I think, uh, who's a famous concentrated investor, had loaded up on Alibaba earlier this year, and then he sold basically all of his stakes this quarter. And I think that's interesting. Like, the people that had just been following because Munger bought the stock, and so a lot of people bought it because Munger bought it, but it seems those people have said this is too complicated and have sold. And I think that might be how you get a bottom, and then Obviously something like JD going up so much indicates that people want to buy Chinese stocks again, which is interesting because the summer they were all going down. But now you're starting to see some of them outperform. So I think it's just interesting. Maybe a maybe a change in sentiment. And for people that want to own China, it's something to look at. So anyone wanna jump on, on that topic? Move to other questions? Oh, okay. Anyone? Gary? No. uh, All right, so I guess we'll move on. Visa, I think, is another interesting one. That one dropped briefly under 200 this week. I think it's... Oh, here we go. Gary. Are you there, Gary? Gary. Are you asking for the microphone, Gary? Or not? All right, I'll see if you hop back on later. Yeah, so I think Visa is another interesting one. Oh, oh, oh. Gary. Oh. All right, so yeah, I think Visa is another interesting one. It dropped under 200 briefly this week, which I believe it's now down or... I'm down a couple of percent since the pandemic started. Hey there, Gary. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the latest news on Visa, the the UK, Amazon said that they're not going to take their credit cards anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so I think this has caused a big reaction, maybe an overreaction. Uh, you look at the the card market in the UK, and only seven percent of sales were with Visa credit cards. Anyway, uh, the, the much bigger portion was Visa debit cards, which will still be accepted going forward, and then the Mastercard cards. Um, but the the market has dropped Visa dramatically, and that's even on top of the the declines from prior to this uh, the Amazon dispute. Uh, People seem to be interpreting the Amazon dispute as a sign of broader trouble, maybe the the buy-now-pay-later people are kind of more competition in the payment space. However, you look at the UK market in particular, uh, and Visa and MasterCard both raised fees dramatically after Brexit. Uh, because previously the fees had been capped due to EU regulation. And then after uh, Britain left the EU, that removed the cap. And so the card companies took advantage of that by raising fees pretty dramatically. And so it seems Amazon's decided to fight back just in that market, uh, which obviously the UK is not a large portion of the world's economy. And then it's only applying to Visa's credit cards there. So I would not say this is a big deal. You look previously, Visa and Walmart and Visa and Kroger have had long disputes that were ultimately both settled. And generally, these things are settled privately. So we don't know the, the exact change in terms of uh, what the fees that went from one side to the other. But this seems like negotiation, not uh, a sea change. And so I'd say people are overreacting. You look at Visa's results, Like actually, if you dive into the numbers, the big thing is that Visa earns a ton of money from what's called cross-border transactions, when people, say, an American goes to Europe or to Japan and spends, uh, Visa gets a much higher fee in those foreign transactions than when an American spends money in the U.S. And so, obviously, this this source of revenue is way down for Visa. The amount of cross-currency transactions is in the U.S. had it had its borders shut until last month and it's still very hard to travel to many asian countries uh i'm not sure what the covid standards are in europe right now but i know covid's flaring up again There, so anyway there's there's a significant decline in international tourism which is uh really dinged visas numbers but prior to the covid i mean this is a company that grows 15 18 or so made the high teens growth every year and was selling above 40 times earnings until recently and now it's going for what 20 29 times forward i believe with the latest price drop and so if you say if you believe international tourism comes back like it was prior to covid uh i think you've got a business at 30 times earnings that's growing at at least 15 percent a year and i believe there's still a very big moat for the credit card companies uh, I saw one article in Bloomberg, for example, that was talking about the decline in Visa stock this week, and it was pointing out the, the threat from buy now, pay later. Uh, but you actually look at how those transactions are processed, and the buy now, pay later uh, player still needs either a Visa or a MasterCard. They still need a card to actually collect the money. I think a lot of people misunderstand the rule. Uh like, when Visa processes a transaction, on average, I believe they only get 20 basis points, 0.2% of the transaction. And more of it goes to the bank or the the financial partner that is facilitating the transaction. The amount of money that, that Visa and MasterCard takes from transactions is very low. And so, I honestly, I find it comical, some of the stuff that people are saying, like... Uh, that crypto is going to to take away all of visas uh, fees. Like you look at the gas fees on Ethereum. Like you want to buy a two hundred dollar NFT and you're gonna pay like seventy dollars of gas fees. Like a, like maybe you lose a third of your money right up front. Yeah, and I know crypto is trying to work on like proof of uh, proof of stake uh, things like Cardano. That maybe we'll get around that. But yeah, your existing crypto options like Bitcoin and Ethereum have uh, many multiples higher transaction fees than. The Visa Mastercard. On the bull side, I would remind people that uh that in emerging markets people still use more cash than cards. So there's a long there's a long runway for further growth there. In a country like here in Colombia where I am, I believe. What is it? Only fifteen percent of the population has uh, plastic in their wallet now. And presumably that will rise dramatically in coming years. And I guess bears could argue that people will go directly from using cash to using crypto or whatnot, but that seems fairly unlikely to me. Uh, But, hey, that's where where discounts happen, because people people believe that stuff like Square and Affirm and, and crypto are a big threat to Visa, and maybe they are in 10 or 20 years, but I don't think they are anytime soon. So, yeah, I see a buy on Visa MasterCard here. Uh, Anyone want to hop on? Anyone? Open line. All right. Well, that's everything I planned, prepared for tonight. So if no one has any questions or comments, then I guess we'll call it a night. Thank you all for joining. And we'll talk again soon. Have a good one.